Let's turn together in God's Word to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. We'll begin reading with verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. Paul has just spoken of his love of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that he's not ashamed of it. Now he goes on to explain the backdrop against which that gospel is so powerful, namely the sin of man and the wrath of God revealed against that sin. Let's, let's begin reading Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their, in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So far we read God's Word this morning, and in light of that Scripture reading and others, let's consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 4. Having just shown from the biblical record that man is 
totally depraved, that is so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. Now, question 9 asks, Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? And the answer is, not at all, for God made man capable of performing it. But man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in His just judgment, temporally and eternally, as He hath declared. Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, His justice requires that sin, which is committed against the most high majesty of God, be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, it has at times been said by Christians that homosexuality is the worst of all sins. And that's taken to be the meaning of Paul in Romans 1. You see, God gets ready to reveal His wrath from heaven when He sees men with men working that which is unseemly and women burning with lust toward one another. That's how bad homosexuality is, along with all related perversions. There are some problems with this assumption, however. One of the problems is that's not exactly the point Paul is making in this passage. Paul's point and the Holy Spirit's point in Romans 1 is not to rank sins or to identify some sins as more worthy of judgment than other sins. As the Lord's Day points out, God is terribly displeased with all sins, our original as well as actual sins. Another problem with assuming that homosexuality is the worst of all sins, is that ranking sins in this way usually comes preloaded with a subtle kind of Phariseeism. What we, what we really mean when we say homosexuality is a worse sin is, well, I sure I'm glad that I'm not one of those people. Meanwhile, when there are believers in the church who struggle with these temptations, they're made to feel as though they are the lowest of the low, almost subhuman, and how could they possibly be forgiven if they have committed the greatest of all sins, which has been identified as such, supposedly in Romans 1. Now, I begin this way and I say these things not to excuse homosexuality, nor to pave the way for its acceptance. 
homosexuality is a sin. It's a terrible sin. It's a sin that not only brings down God's judgment, but according to Paul in Romans 1, is itself a manifestation or an expression of God's judgment. When you see homosexuality in a society, you know that that society is under God's judgment. God has given them over to a reprobate mind, Paul says. But that's not because homosexuality as such is worse than other sins. Homosexuality is simply the development of sin. And it's the development of the same sin that is here in my heart and there in your hearts and in the hearts of all men. And what that sin is is not homosexuality or lesbianism or transgenderism or any particular perversion. What that sin is is pride. Pride. Pride is the first, and we might even say the greatest, sin. And against that human pride, God's wrath is justly, necessarily, and inevitably revealed from heaven. Call our attention this morning to the instruction of Lord's Day 4 in light of Romans 1, and the theme of the sermon is God's wrath against human pride. First, we will see the justice of this wrath of God. Secondly, the necessity of it. And then finally, the inevitability of it. Before we make the point that God's wrath against human pride and all the sin that comes out of pride is just, Let's show a bit more how human pride is, in fact, the root of all sin. But before we do that, I want to begin with a qualification that that word pride, as we use it in modern English, does not always necessarily refer to the sin that the Bible identifies as pride. So when people talk about feeling proud of their children, or proud of their country, or proud of their school, That's not necessarily what the Bible is talking about or condemning as the sin of pride. It's probably not the best choice of words. But when people talk that way, usually what they are meaning is they place a high value on their children. They love their country. They have a lot of interest in their school and in its success, and so they're proud of it. That can develop into sinful pride, but that's not exactly what the Bible means when it talks about pride and condemns it. Sinful pride is when a man arrogates to himself the position and the prerogatives of God. Sinful pride, let me say that again, is when a man arrogates to himself or herself the position and the prerogatives of God. Now, it's not only humans who have committed this sin of pride. Sinful pride first revealed itself in another one of God's creatures, that is, the angel of light. He began as an angel of light anyway, whose name was Lucifer. Isaiah 14, verses 12 
13 and 14 describe the fall of Lucifer that turned him into the character we know as Satan or the devil. And this is what it says. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, this was Lucifer's fall, thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will arrogate to myself the position of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I will arrogate to myself the prerogatives of God. That's pride. That's how the devil became the devil. But then from the devil, that same sin of pride weaseled its way into the hearts of human beings in the Garden of Eden. This, beloved, is the sin of pride. Rather than to tremble at the Word of God and to hear what the Creator has to say to His creatures, pride is to harden your heart and to say, My Word will give shape to my life, not the Word of God. Pride is this. Rather than to humble oneself under the mighty hand of God and to trust in Him to care for you as He cares for all of His creatures, pride is to say, I will be my own master. I will be my own provider. I will live for myself. I will make my own rules. That's pride. And that pride, which has found a home in the human heart, is the doorway that leads into all other sins. Look at the sins that Paul enumerates in Romans 1. It's not only men burning with lust toward one another and men with men working that which is unseemly. It's also men who change the truth of God into a lie. And worship and serve the creature more than the creator who was blessed forever. It's filling one's life, verse 29, with all unrighteousness and fornication and wickedness and covetousness and malice and envy and murder and debate and deceit and malignity. And it's not only doing those things, but it's doing those things against better knowledge And it's not only doing those things against better knowledge, but it's taking pleasure in those things that are done against better knowledge. And it's taking pleasure in them, not because they are such enjoyable things in and of themselves. Think about the activities that Paul is describing there. The men who are characterized by these activities are not happy because of those activities. They're miserable. But it's taking pleasure and doing these things exactly because by doing them, I create the illusion that I am God, that my will is supreme in my life, that my pleasure is paramount. Pride. If you picture the whole array of human sin like a decaying, a musty old house full of rooms and hallways. You can go over into this room over here and define yourself by malice and envy and 
that will manifest itself in the life of robbery and murder, or you can go in this room over here and identify yourself with the backbiters and with the boasters, and that will manifest itself in a certain kind of lifestyle, or you can float between some of those rooms within this house and, and pick up various of these characteristics. But in order to get into any of those rooms and, and in order to be identified by any of those lifestyles, you have to go through the door, don't you? The main entryway. And the main entryway is pride. It's arrogating to oneself the position and the prerogatives of God and making your own will ultimate. That was the doorway through which sin originally entered into the human race in the beginning. The old saying says pride comes before the fall, but that's only partly true. The full truth is that pride itself is a fall. It's a fall that leads into other falls. So it was pride already when the devil opened his mouth and he asked that simple question. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden of Eden? It was pride already when Eve listened to him and saw that fruit that it was good to eat and began to reach out her hand to take it. And before her teeth ever sunk into its flesh, that lust was in her heart, a lust that was born out of pride. It was pride when Adam took the fruit from his wife, listening to her and the message that she got from the devil, even though God's word was still ringing in his ears, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And through that doorway of pride, Adam's pride, that was instigated in him by the devil, sin entered into the world. Through the doorway of Adam's pride came the pride of his son Cain, who arrogated to himself the prerogatives of God by taking the life of his brother Abel. He had no right to do that. Through the doorway of pride that began in the Garden of Eden came the polygamy and the boasting of the murderer Lamech, who not only did murder and sin, but took pleasure in those who did it. And so it developed and increased until God looked down on the whole human race and all he saw in the hearts of men was only evil continually. It all started with pride. And it's not just on the level of the human race that pride is the doorway of all sin, but it's on the individual level of every human heart as well. When we lash out in anger at our neighbor because we did not like something that he did, and we murder him in our hearts, it's pride. When we mouth off at our parents, instead of hearing their instruction and submitting to it with due obedience, it's pride. When a man feels sexually attracted to another man and begins to entertain that attraction, even though it's against nature itself, it's pride. It's all pride. 
pride which is always developing, always pushing the boundaries that God has set, pushing them further and further aside. But beloved, even when it's there in that little seed form, before it has developed, before it has shown everything that is in it, it's still pride, arrogating to oneself the position and the prerogatives of God. When we see pride as the root of all human sin, and then we look at the objection that is raised in question 9, an objection against God and His justice, that objection really ought to just die on our lips. The objection raised in question 9 is that God is unjust if He punishes human beings for their sin. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which, is, that which he cannot perform, that is, by holding him responsible and bringing penalties upon him in relation to his sin. Now, that question comes after question and answer 8. We just saw in question and answer 8 that due to the nature of the fall into sin and the corruption of Adam, that we are so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. We are totally depraved. That's our condition as a result of the fall. And so the logic goes this way. Well, if I am prone to evil and cannot do good, then how can God hold me responsible when I simply do what is in my nature to do? How can God require this of me by punishing me? That's unjust. That's not fair. And of course, this isn't just a hypothetical objection that the Lord's Day is raising here. When our fathers wrote the Heidelberg Catechism, they weren't just coming up with hypothetical questions. They were drawing from the questions that they were hearing, the objections that they were hearing from other people against the doctrine that was taught in the Reformed faith and in the Bible. And we hear this same objection today all of the time, don't we? It's not sinful to have homosexual desires. It's not sinful to uh, practice homosexual acts because I was born this way. It's my nature to do these things. I'm simply doing what's in me. It can't possibly be wrong then. And it would be unfair, unjust to hold me responsible for acts that I'm simply doing because it's, it's how I am. It's not sin to get drunk repeatedly and to develop a dependency on beer and liquor. It's a sickness. And it's a sickness that is in my genes. My father was an alcoholic too, you see. And I'm just doing what is in my DNA. Now, there's something true about that. Sin is a sickness. But unlike the world which uses the language of disease to remove moral implications, we must understand that this is a sickness that is a corruption of nature. It has moral implications, but men then take hold of that idea and they say, well, I can't help it. I'm just doing what's natural to me and therefore it's not my fault and therefore it would be unjust, it would be unfair if God were to punish me for these things. But this objection ought to die on our lips when we remember what sin is. What is sin? 
pride. It's true. Human nature cannot do anything but sin. It's true. We were born this way. But we were not created this way. We were created by God good. And after his own image and righteousness and holiness to glorify and praise him. We were created by God in a beautiful covenant life where God was God and man was man and life was together. And it wasn't God who messed it up. It was human beings who messed it up through Adam. And how did he mess it up? What was the gateway? It was pride. Adam arrogated to himself the position and the prerogatives of God. It was not just disobedience, in other words. It was willful disobedience, which means it was intentional disobedience. It was disobedience with a purpose. It was disobedience with an agenda. It was Adam making a statement, making a declaration, knowing full well the implications both for himself and his children. And his statement, instigated by the devil, the enemy of God, was this. I will be God. I will be God. And I'm going to lead my children down a path so that they say about themselves, I am God. That's what happened. So you see, beloved, if there's anybody to complain about as being unjust, it's not God. If there's anybody we should be upset with, it's Adam. And behind him, it's the devil. But really, if we look in ourselves will realize, based on what we find there, before we get upset with Adam and the devil too much, simply read verse 19. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. When we look at ourselves, and we evaluate ourselves, and what's in us, what we find is this. I have arrogated to myself the position and the prerogatives of God. I've lived in pride. I've lived in rebellion. And that pride deserves to be condemned. It deserves to be dealt with. God is just. He's just to reveal his wrath from heaven. He has a right to reveal it. But is it really necessary that is the nature of the next question? of the Lord's day. Question 10. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? 
But before we get into the answer to that question, we need to spell out a little bit more what is meant by the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God that we have just said is justly aimed at human beings in their pride and in their sin? Well, wrath is a side of God that you only ever see when he is responding to sin. Wrath really is an expression of God's holiness. God is a holy God, and his holiness is his otherness. As the God who is the creator, he is above all things, and as the fountain of all good, he is separate from all things, and he is devoted to himself as the only good God, and he is devoted and consecrated to himself, not in a selfish sort of way, but he is devoted and consecrated to himself and separate, separate from all other things as the triune God. In other words, he is the Father who is devoted to the sanctity and the goodness and the well-being of his Son and Spirit, and the Spirit and the Son who are devoted to the sanctity of the Father. That separation of God, then, makes him burn with fury against all that is contrary to his own nature, that is, contrary to his own goodness. Hebrews 12, verse 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. That's a description of God's holiness. He is like a fire that burns, but what does he burn? What does he consume in the flames of his holiness? And the answer is, he consumes and he destroys everything that would deny his own goodness and beauty and worthiness. God cannot deny himself. God cannot allow anything that would deny him to stand. He reacts against all that is contrary to his own nature. He responds to it. He breaks out against the evil. So when Nadab and Abihu, the priests, offer a strange fire on the altar of God, a strange fire that God did not command, God's fire reaches out and consumes them. And when Korah and Dathan and Abiram and their followers challenge the rule of God through Moses and Aaron, the earth opens up and swallows them in the pit. God's wrath is his instinctive, we might say, his, it's the reaction of his holiness to all evil and all that is contrary to his own goodness. And again, this isn't a self-centered or petty thing on God's part, but it's a jealous and a protective aspect of his being. When a mere man, a creature, denies the goodness of the eternal Son of God, thus attacking him, that mere man himself must be denied in the presence of the eternal Father, who will react against that man in defense of his son. When a human being arrogates to himself the prerogative to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that human being must become the object of the fiery indignation of the triune God. Just to make this on our own level for a minute, think how you would react if you walked outside and you found that your little girl was being savaged by a bulldog, you'd be out that door in a matter of seconds, probably with a baseball bat in your hand. And you'd be perfectly justified if you were to kill that animal. God's wrath is jealous. 
and in a sense defensive. It's also punitive. God's wrath is not just a blind reaction of passion on God's part. God is a consuming fire, but he's not subject to passions the way that human beings are. He's measured. He's controlled. He's sovereign in his application, even of his wrath. And he lets it out, but he lets it out only to fulfill the function of his justice and righteousness and truth. In other words, God only pours out so much wrath as human sin deserves. No more and no less. If sin is like a weight that falls on one side of the scale, God's wrath is the counterweight that brings all things into balance. And God only pours out so much wrath as to even out the scales. And that tells us something about what's going on when God reveals his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What's going on is that God is taking back something that is his. Man in his pride has at least attempted to take something from God. He has arrogated to himself the position and the prerogatives of God, and now God is putting man back in his place. That's what he reveals his wrath to do. The objection raised in question and answer 10, then, is this. Is that really necessary? Won't God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? This is an objection that appears in various forms. One form is what I'll call the dismissive objection, where a man will say something like this, oh, come on, really? Because I yelled at my neighbor in a momentary fit of rage, there has to be wrath, eternal wrath against me? Really? God isn't really going to follow through with all of this, is he? That would be crazy. That would be crazy. That would blow things way out of proportion. Surely, God will suffer my disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished. It's not all that serious after all. The other form is what we might call the compassion objection, where somebody would say something like this, well, surely God is not the kind of being who would allow his creatures to go on suffering. Surely God is not the kind of being who would send people into a terrible place like hell, where there is utter darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's merciful, isn't he? He's a God of love, and love must win. A God who would punish sin is a hater, not a lover. Now, these kinds of objections say a lot about the human beings who talk this way, and they say a lot about us, if we've ever reasoned this way. They tell us about our priorities and what we think ought to be the way God operates. They tell us about our feelings and our sympathies, but they don't actually tell us anything about God himself. In other words, what's going on with these kinds of objections is just another expression of human pride, where we arrogate to ourselves the position and the prerogatives of God. What this kind of objection is doing is saying, 
we will tell God what is important enough to be punished. We will tell God what is serious and what is not serious, what is major and what is minor. We will define for God what is love and what is hatred, what is mercy and what is justice. We will make God in our own image. And lo and behold, that is exactly what men do according to Romans 1, is it not? Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. And they make God into the image of the creature, into the image of man, it says. But what does the Bible say? What the Bible says is this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notwithstanding, men holding the truth in unrighteousness and denying that it's all that serious or denying that this justice is necessary, notwithstanding all of that, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the Bible says this, as quoted in question and answer 10, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Cursed is that man. Cursed with the curse of God. And what is the curse of God? It's to be the object of his wrath. It's to be rejected by him. It's to be cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. As far as the necessity is concerned, we could say right there, well, that enough said. God says it's necessary. Enough said. We should think a little bit deeper about why it's necessary. Why God says it's necessary. Our problem, you see, is we don't think big enough. We don't realize, or we choose not to recognize just how deadly serious sin really is. Every sin. If you arrogate to yourself the position and the prerogatives of God, what are you doing? What are you saying? What you're saying is this. I wish there was no God at all. And if God was around, I'd kill him. I'd get him out of the way so that I can take his place and so that I can have the things that he has. And you know the story you know that that's exactly what happened. When God came within reach of men, took on human flesh, entered as light into the darkness, what happened? They took him and they killed him, nailed him to a cross. And they said, we're not the cursed ones. You are. Curse you. Is it necessary for God to have an answer to that? Is it necessary for God to have an answer that is in proportion to the crime? It is. God would not be a loving God if he did not have an answer to that crime. God would not be a just God if he did not have an answer to that crime. He would be guilty. He would be guilty of the greatest hate crime that there is, which is to hate God. No, God will not suffer 
such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in his just judgment temporally and eternally as he hath declared. And that brings us to the inevitability of this wrath of God against human pride. The inevitability of God's wrath is exactly because He is a God of justice. <clears throat> Human beings are not just. They overlook sin. Sometimes they overlook sin because they're not in all places in all times and they simply didn't see what happened. They don't know what happened. But sometimes it's because in their pride they refuse to see the sin and they refuse to see the seriousness of the sin. And instead of acknowledging the sin and confessing it, they minimize it. That's the irony of the objections that are raised in this Lord's Day, isn't it? Human beings, the least just, the least righteous of all God's creatures who are corrupted with sin arrogate to themselves the right to accuse God, to accuse Him of injustice, and then to act like that settled the matter. But God, unlike human beings, actually is just. He will never punish sin with more than the crime deserves. He will only punish it exactly enough so as to remove the offense and to settle the scales. And if you know just how bad sin is, that ought to terrify you. That ought to make you tremble. Sin. Pride. Which is committed against the most high majesty of God must and will be punished with extreme punishment in body and soul. And that's because God is a God of justice. Because God is a God of justice, there is a hell. Because God is a God of justice, there is a place where men and devils will go, where they will pay for their sin. Everyone who exalts himself in pride will be made low. Jesus says that. It's as certain as the sky is blue. And we ought to think about that, beloved, when we see people marching around in pride parades. Pride parades. We ought to think about that when we see parents bringing their children to these functions and decorating them with the symbols of these functions. Do these people have any idea what they are dealing with? They're proud of it. Proud of it. Knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do they do these things, but they have pleasure in them that do them. Beloved, that's our world. What Paul says in verse 32 is, the descriptive, is descriptive of our world. And God's wrath is hanging over that world like a deep, dark, ominous cloud. But what ought to sober us is when we realize it's not just those people marching in pride parades. This is human nature. 
Out there I see pride fully developed and marching in the streets, but that same pride that is marching out there in the streets is right here, has a home in my heart. Beloved, that's worse. It's worse. The pride of the wicked is a pride they express against a God who is their enemy. Our pride is a pride that we express against a God who loves us. And what we say to him, whenever we sin, whenever we live in unbelief and impenitence is, I don't want you on the throne, God. I don't want you to have the position that you have. I want that position for myself. I will be my own God, at least for a little while, at least until this television show is finished. At least until this pleasurable activity is done, I will be my own God. God can't overlook that, beloved. He can't and he won't. There are some things God can't do. One of them is to overlook sin. He will punish it. Inevitably, he will punish it. He will pour out his wrath against all sin, all pride, whether it is sin that is manifested out there in the pride parades out in the streets or whether it is sin that is manifested here in the hearts of his own people. He will punish it, and he has. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ means for us, isn't it? God has punished our sinful pride. He didn't overlook it. He didn't minimize it. He didn't pretend it wasn't there. He exposed it. He brought it all out there for everybody to see, and he punished it poured out his wrath on his son until it was finished. Are you too proud to believe that? Don't be. Believe it, beloved. Believe that God would go to such lengths to deliver you. Let the relief of that wash over you in your life and inform your behavior. And then know this also, as inevitable as God's wrath is against all human pride, so inevitable is his mercy toward his people. That is an amazing statement in answer 11. God is indeed merciful. He's just. He is merciful too. His mercy does not cancel out his justice, but neither does his justice cancel out his mercy. The two live in perfect harmony with one another. And if God has shown mercy to you in the cross of his son, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, he will show that mercy to you today as well. And he will show that mercy to you tomorrow. And he will continue showing that mercy to you all the way until you leave this life, this life of brokenness, corruption, and sin, and pride, and enter into the life that is to come. He will forgive your sins, even your worst sins. Maybe you have committed sins that make you feel such intense shame you can't imagine that you could possibly ever be forgiven. Maybe you have even been tempted by the corruptions that you see out there in the world. But be assured, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven in the cross of Jesus Christ, except it be stubborn impenitence and unbelief. 
The sick need a physician, not the whole. Don't be self-righteous. Don't continue in that pride, but forsake it. Humble yourself. Live in repentance. Trust in the mercy of your God, a God who, has, who will reveal his wrath, but who has also revealed his mercy to you in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee that thou art a God who is holy and righteous and true. We don't see that anywhere in the world. What we see in human beings are lies and twisting. What we see in thee is truth. What we see in thee is constancy and the inevitability of the revelation of thy perfections and of thy glory, including thy mercy. And, O Father, we thank thee for that mercy. For we stand convicted before thee, O Father. We stand as convicted before thee as anyone out there in the world. We have sinned. We have fallen short of thy glory. We are not worthy of anything from thee. Forgive us. Let us taste and see thy goodness through thy forgiveness and through thy mercy. And then, O oh Father, knowing what that cost thee in the death of thy Son, transform our lives by thy Spirit. Let the pride that reigned in our hearts be transformed into humility. Let our arrogance be humbled. Send us away from thy house this morning with thy blessing. And hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.